Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The FT. Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, Patrick Jenkins. Joining me in the studio today are Brooke Masters, our Chief Regulation Correspondent. Daniel Schaefer, investment banking correspondent, and Jenny Thompson, our retail banking correspondent. And down the line from Dubai, we have Camilla Hall, our Gulf correspondent. This week, we'll discuss the replacement of the scandal-plagued LIBOR benchmark rate, which could happen as soon as next year. We'll take a look at news that a prominent member of the Saudi royal family is at the heart of a US criminal probe into whether Barclays made improper payments in the kingdom. And finally, we'll discuss the financial well-being of the co-op bank, as Moody's downgrades the bank's credit to junk status. First, though, to the LIBOR story. Brooke, never a week seems to go by without you writing something about LIBOR. And the latest is you've been talking to Martin Wheatley, the head of the Financial Conduct Authority in the UK, who has responsibility for overhauling the regulation of of the LIBOR benchmark. Interesting comments that he made, really, about wanting to have a a dual-track system going forward. Can you explain? (laughs) Martin's point of view is that if it is not possible to design a new benchmark that is based on market transactions that will run and act very much like the one it replaces, that it is not fair to existing contract holders to just stop the current rate, which is based on surveys, and start with a new one. Because just to to rewind a little bit on this, LIBOR, as we all know, or as many people know, is the benchmark that has obviously been brought into disrepute over the manipulation of the benchmark as regulators have investigated it over recent years. But it's hugely important. It underpins $350 trillion of, of contracts around the world in various forms. And those are long running contracts in in many cases. So even if you think you want to rip up LIBOR and and start again, you can't because you've got these ongoing contracts that need some kind of benchmark. Well, what's interesting is there are two perspectives on that. And some regulators, Gary Gensler is the most prominent, think that in fact, we do need to rip it up and start again. And he wants a relatively short transition period because he believes that the existing rate, which is based on banks' estimates of what they can borrow at, is basically fiction. Because at this point, banks don't do unsecured lending to each other. So they're making up estimates. So is, is Gary Gensler's position, he's the head of the CFTC in the US. Does he summarize the US position? Does he represent it? Well, he got the Financial Stability Oversight Council, which is all the US regulators, to sign on to a recommendation, I think it was last week, for you know prompt replacement and saying that the current rate was unsustainable. So that definitely, the US is clearly in that camp. So how would that work in practice then what would happen to legacy libel pegged contracts that's what's not clear and that's what martin's concern is is we need something i think the growing consensus is that at least for some period of time you'll have to run rates in parallel there'll be a new market-based rate and there'll be a survey rate and i think the fight will ultimately be over how long i mean it should be noted that the bank of spain is still running a mybor which is a madrid rate 13 years after 
there stopped being any interbank lending in Madrid at all because they have 30-year mortgages that are tied to it. Right. I think the U.S. regulators would view that as a failure. I mean, mm-hmm. they want something to end much sooner. And everyone's agreed that they want forward business from here on to be related to actual transactions rather than some survey rate, as you say. I think ideally. One of the things that people have raised is that transaction-based rates are much more volatile than survey-based rates. They tend to bounce up and down a lot. And what that may mean is it makes things like variable mortgages and variable student loans far less attractive. I think that's a price that some regulators are willing to pay, but not necessarily others. And so that's that's the other half of this fight is what what exactly do you do with all those new variable mortgages as well as old ones? And what is the likely consequence of that going forward? Is it that we have far more fixed rate lending in future, a move in the UK towards a more of a, a continental European model or a US model? It's hard to tell, actually, because the other thing you could do, and the Bank for International Settlements has raised this, is that regulators could develop a rate that they want to steer everybody to that is stable yet also not manipulable. Right. And so the Bank for International Settlement, which working on a project basically put forward by the UK, said that's another possibility is that we come up with a better rate and, and sort of steer people into it. So that's also one element that you have to consider is that moving to transaction on the benchmark rate doesn't necessarily mean that it's not prone to manipulation because if, if it is a market that, that doesn't have a lot of liquidity in it, you can have manipulation in it as well. What, as by you have making up transactions? Well, by making up transactions or by putting orders into a market, small orders that can influence the price oh, if, it's a, yeah. if it's small liquidity in, in the market. Yeah. That's particularly a problem when the market is over the counter. So there isn't an easy way to check whether these are small orders that nobody knows about. Right. Um, and that and that's come up. IOSCO, which is the global group, the International Organization of Securities Commissions, which is also trying to come up with solutions not just for LIBOR, but also for you know gold benchmarks, oil benchmarks, etc. One of their concerns is over the counter transactions and how to handle them. Final word, in this hugely complex evolution of uh, the way things are done, what's the next thing to look out for? They'll pick a new LIBOR administrator to run the UK rates. They're doing shortlist interviews, I think, next month, so within a couple of months. That administrator is then supposed to put forward some concrete proposals as to what to do next. Right. Thank you for that, Brooke. We should move on to our second topic, which is Barclays in Saudi Arabia. Daniel, this has been a long-running story. We, I think, reported a few months ago that Barclays was under investigation over its various activities in, in Saudi. In particular, there was a Department of Justice investigation in the US that we wrote about, which we thought centred on the granting of a licence to Barclays. But in the last few days, we found out far more details about this. Bring us up to date, exactly. The main thing, really, that that has come to light now and that we reported on over the weekend is that the US Department of Justice is probing whether a prominent member of the Saudi royal family has been involved in this through illicit fees that were paid to him by Barclays. There are two separate instances that seem to be under investigation as well rather than just one. Yeah, one incident was connected to attempts by the bank to recover a large loan on which the borrower had defaulted on more than 10 years ago, which was for a, a loan given for a large building project for... Oh, this, this military... Military uh, compound. compound, yeah. yeah. And, and, the, the, and the suggestion there that investigators are looking at is whether this Saudi royal, whose name is Prince Turki bin Abdullah bin Abdelaziz, a son of the king, whether he had been the recipient of improper payments from Barclays to try and recoup those funds from yeah. that. 
Indeed, that alone. Yeah. And then there was a second incident as well, which was related, as we'd originally reported, to the license that Barclays got a few years yeah. later. Yeah, Barclays doesn't dispute that it had worked with Prince Turkey, but it Barclays saying that they had appointed him to advise it on strategic issues, uh, as he said, in the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, as well as on the license application. Right. So they're basically saying we did work with him, but there wasn't any illicit element in it. Right. And we should say that a representative of Prince Turkey, albeit tangentially, has indicated that the relationship has been between Barclays and, and al Obaye, which is a company that Prince Turkey is, is involved with, rather than with him as an individual. It's all very complicated stuff, but obviously harmful, again, I suppose, for Barclays' reputation. We've got Camilla Hall on the line as well, our Gulf correspondent, who will know far more, if not about the intricacies of this specific investigation, certainly about the ways of doing business in that part of the world. Camilla, do you think this tells a broader story? I think it does raise questions about introductory payments, about the whole idea of middlemen in, in Gulf banking. I think, as you said, you know, Barclays have confirmed that they worked with Prince Turkey. You know, the question really remains in this story as to whether did they really need his help? What was he able to provide them? What did they feel that they needed from Prince Turkey that actually would warrant hiring him? I think it does raise a broader question. If, if international investment banks think that they need support from these third parties is it really the case that they do or is there a perception that they do within the kingdom i think talking to some sources there are questions over whether barclays really needed to to hire someone to actually help them facilitate the license with the cma or whether they would have been able to receive a license alongside many other investment banks that actually got their licenses around that time so i think it does raise broader questions i think one of the other interesting things about this story is really you know, what did Barclays get out of this license? I think there's big questions as to how much money can actually be made by the big investment banks in Saudi Arabia. A lot of them went in at the same time, but who's actually been successful? Yes, it's, it's not such a, such a big market that there's actually room for everybody to prosper. Well, the irony is it, it is a big market. I mean, it, it's the biggest Arab economy. Um, it's a huge market, but it's how do you make a profit there? Part of the issue is that you have extremely liquid local banks who who are willing to lend, who already have the relationships with the best clients. And one of the problems in Saudi is that everyone wants to lend to the same clients, whether it's Aramco or, you know, your big government state companies. So how do the international investment banks come in and lend to those clients who are already well catered for by the local banks? How do they differentiate themselves? And some people talk about the failures and the successes of certain banks within the kingdom. And Deutsche Bank is an example that comes up as, as a bank that has actually done quite well in the kingdom because they've been able to go in there with balance sheets. And they've gone into some of the largest syndicated loan deals and they've been able to offer that, that kind of secondary market in a way that perhaps the local banks hadn't been able to do. So they'd, they'd offered something unique and tried to differentiate themselves. Whereas when you see some of the other investment banks going in not really wanting to lend i think they find it very difficult to get on to some of the 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 advisory deals the bottom line in the gulf has been you know you have to go in with balance sheets otherwise you can't really expect to do to do business here right and i think different banks have behaved differently the very very top notch you know u.s banks have always tried to, to lend to the top clients but it's a very competitive market and the local banks are already doing that yeah absolutely daniel for barclays what does this latest turn of events mean in terms of obviously as camilla's saying it might not be a hugely lucrative market for them to be able to generate earnings from but i'm guessing that 
for Anthony Jenkins, the chief executive, who's who's basically on a mission to try and um, clean up the group's reputation. This news of the of the latest investigative uh, details is the last thing he needs. The main thing I think really it shows is that the legacy of Barclays will continue to haunt the bank for many years to come, really. The strategy that Anthony Jenkins announced, which is to transform, as he called it, the bank and make it a culturally and socially more ex- acceptable bank and uh, with, with you know better business behavior is really not a three-year project as he set it out to be but it looks more like a decade-long project yeah uh, to, to you know to transform the culture of a bank is very difficult and he's been starting last summer and since then he had to deal with still some of the LIBOR issues in c- connection with the LIBOR rate manipulation scandal he had to deal with the PPI and interest rate protection scandals, mis-selling scandals, and he's he's still having to deal with several legacy legal issues such as the, the, the Saudi investigation as well as the the investigation into the the cash calls Barclays did in two thousand eight, where Qatar was one of the investors. Of course, that's another Middle Eastern connection that, as you say, will be haunting him. I'm sure as investigations proceed on that over the coming months. We should leave it there and move on to our third topic, which is the co-op bank. There's been some fairly dramatic developments of the co-op of late. Last week we saw a fairly severe downgrade from Moody's of the bank's credit rating and also the chief executive resigned. Jenny, you've been looking at this story. Where, Where does it go from here? It's all a bit up in the air for the cooperative bank at the the moment. I mean, it's worth saying that they have issued a statement saying they they're not looking for government support, which was one suggestion the, the Moody's report raised. And in some ways, it changes relatively little. Of course, the big news from the bank has been the collapse of this sort of big transformative deal, which was going to something like triple it in size. This was the deal to acquire about six hundred branches from Lloyd. So, in that sense, there's nothing new. The question now is, where does the bank go from here? So we found out a few weeks ago when the Lloyds transaction was still a possibility that regulators, we understood at least, had had discovered a capital deficit at the bank of up to a a billion pounds. Even though that deal has fallen apart, the question remains for the co-op is how they are going to raise that capital. They don't have access to equity markets like listed banks. How can a mutual solve this kind of problem? Yeah, well, they have limited room for manoeuvre. I mean, they can't tap their shareholders for cash. They do have some subordinated debt. But of course, you know, the question now is not assuming more, but, you know, what's going to happen to the holders of that debt? I mean, we're we're in a state of limbo at, at the moment to some extent. I mean, it's not clear exactly how big the capital hole, hole might be. Obviously, they've got a new chief executive in. So against this backdrop of them having to review, you know, what their plan to, you you know, address the whole is going to be. There's also, you know, a kind of a, a breath of fresh air um, by you and Sutherland, who's been in the job for about about a week now. So it's unclear what it might be. I mean, the most obvious route would be making disposals. They've already announced or made the disposal of a couple of insurance businesses. And of course, you know, the co-op is a fairly sprawling group. It, it's sort of fairly common to say, you know, nothing is sacred. I think it w- would be shocked to see, you know, the supermarket division rapidly reduced. But then, you know, there are other areas such as, you know, funeral businesses and, and pet care and things like that. The other question really is what's going to happen to the underperforming parts of the bank? Because, of course, you know, the bank, just as with RBS and Lloyds, it's sort of a tale of two entities. What's dragging the co-op down at the minute are the bad loans it acquired when it took on Britannia and these underperforming commercial real estate loans. The bank already designates these as non-core, but of course that raises the possibility, would they run down that book, which they're already doing? Would they sell it off? Would they hive it off in some other way? 
Brooke, you have obviously taken interest in this story from the regulatory capital point of view. One of the reasons we think that this capital deficit has, has emerged really is because the Bank of England's Financial Policy Committee conducted this study a few months ago of the capital position of all the banks. Where is that whole process at? Because they basically handed the reins to the Prudential Regulation Authority, which is the new prudential regulator within the bank. Where are we at in terms of that process? We're not entirely sure when, but we do know that the PRA will be announcing sometime in the near future what it expects all the banks to do. Do we think that's going to be a public exercise? Are they going to say X, Y, Z bank has to raise certain amount or is it going to be left up to the banks it's not yet clear i think i think their preferred position would be that they tell the banks and then the banks announce it themselves if there's recalcitrance there might be a public announcement but i think i think the the preference is for the banks to announce their own problem and own solution in their own time well i think the key for the co-op is probably whether the number that comes out of that exercise tallies with what they can hope to raise from asset sales and also the time frame that they have to do that because it's not clear what the time frame is for meeting any capital deficits right the the last thing the FPC said when it said it wanted all this stuff fixed, it, they gave a sense of end of the year, but it wasn't a firm like we will do this by January 2014. What's interesting about all this is the commercial real estate stuff is just disastrous on many of the bank's books. And it's emerged first with co-op, but it'll be interesting to see how bad it is elsewhere. Yeah, quite. Well, that's it for this week. All that's left for me to do is to thank Brooke, Daniel, Jennifer and down the line Camilla for their contributions and to thank you for listening. Remember, you can keep up to date with all of the latest banking stories at ft.com slash banking. Banking Weekly was produced by Katie Carney. Until next week, goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Summer's just around the corner, so give your body the care it deserves with Osea's best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil. Created by infusing Andaria seaweed in barrels of botanical oils, it leaves skin silky soft and glowing. Plus, it's clinically proven to improve elasticity and deeply moisturize without feeling greasy. It's safe, clean, vegan skincare. Get 10% off your first order at oseamalibu.com with code GLOW, plus free shipping on orders over $60.